This program is brought to you by Pussy Magnets. Welcome, welcome, my lovely lumps. Or should I say lovely labs? I'm so thrilled to have you here in the Labia Lounge to yarn about all things sexuality, womanhood, holistic health, and everything in between. Your legs. Ah, uh, can never help myself. Anyway, we're going to have vag loads of real chats with real people about real shit. So buckle up, you're about to receive the sex ed that you never had and have a bloody good laugh while you're at it. Before we get stuck in, I'd like to respectfully acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which I'm recording this, the Manang people. It's an absolute privilege to be living and creating dope podcast content on Noongar country and I pay respect to their elders past, present and emerging. Now, if you're ready, let's flap and do this. <laughs> oh God, is there such thing as too many vagina jokes in the one intro? <laughs> Whatever, I'm leaving it in. It's my podcast. Don't panic, you're not broken. Your sex education was a piece of shit. Get your flaps out and pull up the couch. It's the Labia Lounge. Hey, my labial lovers, great to have you here again. Today I'm going to be chatting to Chana Cassell about sexual trauma and sexual shame, what it means, how it affects us, how to deal with it, and what to do to you know, begin overcoming some of the blockages that result from it. And obviously it's a gigantic topic and there's no one size fits all. So I just want to like put that as a little caveat, you know, this isn't going to be, you know, your step-by-step, you know, blueprint for healing your sexual trauma, but we are going to do our best to give you some tools and, and kind of unpack some of this so that you can gain a better understanding of how it might be impacting you and what to do about it. So, to give you a rundown on Chana, she's an LMFT and a trauma-trained psychotherapist and a sexuality coach. She helps people heal, connect, and find pleasure in their bodies, and she's been doing this for over two decades, first as a sex educator and sex toy clerk at Good Vibrations in San Francisco, and then as a master somatic coach and body worker. Now, as a licensed psychotherapist. So she's pretty flippin' experienced and I'm really excited to chat with her. She's also got a really amazing podcast called The Laid Open Podcast and is writing a book, which we're going to chat a little bit about. So welcome, Chana. Thank you so much for having me. I love mm-hmm. it. Labia lovers. <laughs> so Let's start with the thesis of your book. And I know you've put a bit of a pause on writing it at the moment and the podcast has taken the front seat for now. But um, as I understand it, the thesis, uh, the thing you're kind of passionate and writing about is around redefining what sexual trauma is. So I'd love to hear like what made you choose that topic to write about in the first place. Mm, Well, you know, healing my own sexual trauma um, and I think that when you're a kid and, and certain, uh, behaviors and actions and ways of being are normalized in your family, you don't even necessarily know what is appropriate and what's not appropriate, right? It may not be until decades later when you're exposed to something that you go, oh, that's not, that's not how a, uh, a parent interacts with their kid. That's not appropriate. Oh, boundaries. What are those? 
Um, and so I think part of my interest in that is, is that the, the, an understand certain things like, uh, you know, my stepfather would, and maybe trigger, trigger warning, we'll put it out there. Mm-hmm. If, I don't mean to, to speak about things flippantly, but you've already explained what we're going to get into. But so something mm-hmm. like, um, my stepfather verbally being abusive until I would have a reaction and, you know, me being a hundred pound individual punching his 280 pound body, like punching his arm. And then he would pinch my breasts. Like that was, he's like, I can do this all day. Like little things like that. You you know, you think of certain Mm -hmm. things as being sexual abuse, but things like that, you know, pinning porn, like really gross porn, you know, magazines to my bedroom door, like all, all sorts of things that he thought were funny that would fall into that category that I didn't even realize. I I knew that certain events were, were considered, um, sexual abuse, like direct touching of my body in other ways, Mm -hmm. like my Mm -hmm. genitals, but I didn't know that other kinds of things fell into that category until I got educated as you know, an older person. Mm. So, so that's one piece of it, but really what I see is that the energy that flows through our systems, our life force is also our, our sexual vibrance. And so when you have life experiences, um, like being a person of color in the world, like growing up with a mentally ill parent or a drug addicted parent, and you're trying to be safe or acceptable or smaller or not visible, and you hold your breath and you tighten certain parts of your body or stop feeling certain parts of your body, you're squeezing down on your life force. And how can that not impact your sexual self-expression? So I'm defining sexual trauma broader than sexual assault and child sexual abuse. Right. So there doesn't have to be direct touching of your physical body or even sexual Mm -hmm. things explicitly said to you for your sexual self-expression to be impacted and how you feel inside your body and how you feel during sexual encounters, your level of safety, your level of connection to yourself and others. Right. So that's that's how I'm holding it. And I've seen that over, you know, seeing, seeing clients for, for 20 years and you could even, I've even had clients where a parent is just really overly doting and energetically invasive with their kid Mm. or a mother who, uh, uses their, their child as a surrogate, right? Like treats them inappropriately on an emotional level and is getting all their emotional Mm. needs met from their kid and how these things can live in the body or, or being raised Catholic and all the shame that accompanies that, like how those things live in the body very similarly to sexual abuse. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I have a question on my intake form when I'm working with people for mm-hmm. yoni mapping mm-hmm. um, around, you know, have you experienced any sexual trauma or sexual abuse? And a lot of the time people kind of pause and they don't know how to answer that because they're like, oh, I don't know if this counts mm-hmm. or if it qualifies. And and I'm kind of just like, well, if you're thinking of it in response to this question right now, it probably counts. And, yeah. you know, if you've still got memory of that and it still feels 
big enough to kind of recall in this moment. Um, it's obviously impacted you enormously and it has stuck with you. Uh, and you know, it's, but then it's really, it's tricky because I sort of was, I, I'm often saying to people, um, sure, maybe it's not a really obvious, explicit, uh, violation such Mm. as, uh, you know, physical touching or, or rape or something like that. And so maybe you don't, qualify it as sexual trauma but you know so many so many things I had always sort of classified as as sexual trauma because you know they're traumatic in that they really stick with you they impact you they influence how you feel about your body um but and that was more just to validate people's experiences so that they weren't minimizing their mm-hmm. experience just because in comparison to maybe something more overt, it wasn't as serious or whatever. Um, and now I'm sort of, I'm, I'm struggling with like this, the language that we have because there's a, um, there's a woman, a cognitive neuroscientist called mm. Dr. Carolyn, Caroline Leaf, <clears throat> I think. And she sort of talks about how the word trauma has become a bit of a catch-all term Mm -hmm. and it's being bandied around really flippantly. We're using it for way too many things. And so that's diminished the true meaning of it. And it's, and you know, she argues that it makes it hard to emphasize or give weight to scenarios that are actually like massively traumatic, like the original kind of definition of the word might've been in reference to like, you know, PTSD, um, uh, things that cause PTSD and like war or, you know, rape, um, like very, very, very big, hugely traumatic mm-hmm. things. And, and so mm-hmm. her argument's like, oh, we're using this word trauma like all the time to mean everything. And now I'm like, hmm, okay, how do I validate, you know, people's experience that's, that's definitely traumatic on some level, you know, maybe microaggressions or micro traumas, um, without minimizing yeah, I don't know. Do you know what I mean? Have you sort yeah, of heard yeah. this, this argument? No, what are your absolutely. thoughts on that? So, I mean, it, th- there's there's a lot to what you just said. Um, so there's also CP, right? So, so um, chronic PTSD, right? And there's mm-hmm. different la- like layers, right? Layers mm-hmm. of trauma. So um, do you know about the ACE score? Are you familiar with the study? It, it was done in the oh, States. Vaguely. So probably it's, it's, yeah, but it's a, it's a useful study for you to, to look into. It was started at Kaiser and I believe it went on to be conducted at Stanford, but they started to wreck basically what it does is it's 10 questions and it's looking at, um, adverse childhood experiences, right? So there's everything on there mm-hmm. from having a parent who's in prison to um, witnessing domestic violence, to mm. sexual abuse, to yeah, right. Actually, I and did that recently. <laughs> you, did, you did. The I did that. Score. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We did it as part of a, a course I'm doing. Yep. And mm. and so the the point is that there there are these accumulative experiences mm. that, and what they were specifically looking at is long term health consequences, right? And so what we know is. You know, we have all of our, we have our cultural conditioning, our social conditioning, we have developmental trauma, birth trauma, ancestral trauma, like all of these things, uh, social, you know, social trauma forms of like racism, sexism, and homophobia. And that, you know, we can look at someone's cervix and there can be armoring 
to their, you know, you know this, right? In, internally from verbal shaming. There doesn't even have to be a physical experience of sexual abuse or assault for the body to protect itself and either feel a lot of pain or feel a lot of numbness, right? So mm. that is that is all real. And I think, I, I'm curious, I don't know uh, Dr. Leaf or Leif or however you want to say it, um, mm. but I understand that the overuse of any term, like um, when it gets really pop psyche, it waters things down, right? Mm. It might minimize people will, will say like, oh, I'm so depressed. It's like, well, what do you actually mean when you say that? There's, there's, mm. it's useful to have clinical terms. And at the yeah. same time, um, I, you know, we didn't know, we didn't recognize the impact of so many things. We can study, we can look at brains now, right? We can, we can look at the mm. impact of different things. We, we know and understand about armoring and, and fashion and like how trauma gets held or unexpressed mm. experiences and bound energy gets held in the fascia. So mm. yes, people are using that language more, you know? Um, yeah. So I, I think I could make an argument for both, right? Like, it, mm-hmm. is, it, is it problematic to uh, not be specific and overuse something? Um, but do I think we had a habit of dismissing and minimizing and being like, oh, you can hit mm-hmm. kids, you can abuse kids, they don't remember. Oh, there's no God. impact. Yeah. But there's, yeah. we know perinatal psychology in utero trauma is a real thing. There are impacts. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that was a a long answer. <laughs> no, that was exactly what I'm yeah, wanting to like that that's it. It's like this is there's an argument for both sides and I totally see where uh, you know she's coming from and the watering down is that's a perfect way to describe it. I think that does happen with a lot of terms that you know were initially like a clinical quite specific term for something. Mm-hmm. Um but at the same time, yeah, I, I really, I really think it's important to, to acknowledge and validate just how impactful and, you know, influential these negative experiences can be for people. And so I do tend to, yeah, to kind of frame it as like, well, that all does get stored in the body as a traumatic experience and there's layers of it. And obviously there's different levels. Um, and and it's just not really that useful to compare, you know, my client yeah. who had an uncle that, you know, made her feel really uncomfortable by kind of squeezing her breasts and just pushing her boundaries to someone who, you know, had their leg blown off in the war. It's like it's it's just not doing anyone a service to try to compare those. It's like, well, one is trauma and one is like obviously not bad enough to be trauma. It's like, you know, um, so yeah, it's just an interesting conversation. I really wanted to get your thoughts on yeah. that. I think I'm yeah, in a pretty similar position to your stance on that. Well, there's so much to it because also we know that it's not the event itself. It's how someone copes, you know, did they have support and resources after Mm. this, uh, an event that they basically felt. So on a somatic, a somatic definition of trauma is very different than an ER definition of trauma, right? So does your nervous system have the capacity to handle, you know, emotionally the experience that it's going through Mm. at that time? 
is there support mm-hmm. afterwards? And, um, you know, and, and what kind of action are you able to take? Are you able to discharge that energy? Are you able to run? Are you able to fight? Or if you mm-hmm. freeze, we know that that's more likely going to cause long-term PTSD. And if you freeze once, you tend to freeze repeatedly. And yeah. so, you know, if someone has had pre-verbal trauma or if they've frozen at a very young age, the tendency is going to arise again and again in a variety of situations. Yeah. Yeah. And so let's chat about maybe the difference between sexual trauma and sexual shame and maybe where they overlap or one might turn into the other. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so I see there's a useful a useful chart that I like to draw for my clients. It's originally, I think, used in, in domestic violence education. Um, so imagine on a sheet of paper, you at the very top of the page, it says uh, power, and at the very bottom of the page, it says powerlessness, right? And so you can think mm. of powerlessness as it's like you're out of control, you're helpless, you're you're basically annihilated, like you, you just, you, you no longer exist. And right above that is shame, right? And above that is guilt. And above that is, you know, or maybe blame and then guilt. I like to put regret in there. Um, and above that are other emotions, right? So the the most, when we experience something where we're feeling powerless, pe- like for instance, uh, being stuck in traffic, people will go to anger. They want to regain power. And the least vulnerable emotion is anger. So people will default to anger just automatically. Yeah. And underneath it, there's other emotions and it's not always in this order, right? Emotions are layered, but there's fear and there's, um, uh, you know, hurt, right? Sadness and all of this. And so when I think about shame, I often think we as humans have so little tolerance for powerlessness that we will, uh, would rather feel shame and shame is unbearable too. But we'd rather feel shame because at least I can feel ashamed and feel like I have a little bit of power, like I should have done something differently, right? It was my fault. So if I can blame myself or shame myself, there's a false perception that I could have controlled the situation and had some power. Um, so that's that's a way that I often think about shame and um, and shame accom- is very commonly accompanies all forms of, of sexual assault, child sexual abuse, very commonly it's what keeps people silent um, and blaming themselves. And there's a lot more I could say, but it looked like you wanted to say something. Totally. Um, I'm kicking myself right now that I didn't dig up this quote and write it down I was going to and then I forgot. But recently I had yeah. Dr. Tina Sellers on the podcast um, mm. who wrote a book called Shameless Parenting and we did an episode mm. on shame-free parenting and she had this incredible quote about sexual shame. It was a definition that she'd gotten somewhere and it was just I got goosebumps when she was reading it out because I was just mm. like, oh, my God, it's so – it's, it was very, very well articulated and just described everything that I'd experienced in terms of like, you know, sexual shame and how that impacted me and showed up. Um, yeah. I would love to, if you, up. yeah, if you find yeah. it, I would love to, uh, if you share it with me. Um, yeah, I, mean, I will. Sex- 
sexual shame is such a big topic because there's so much. I mean, I, I feel like you have to put an umbrella and then have all these little prongs or legs that dangle from it. And, you know, because there's sexual shame that comes from religion, right? Like you're not, and sexual shame specific to women versus like, or like, you know, vulva bearing bodies versus people who have Mm -hmm. penises, right? The size of your vulva, the size of your penis, the shape of your body parts, the, you know, the the size of your breasts, like so much there's body shame. And then there's, there's, there could be shame for what you desire. I, you know, it's, there's, it's layered and complicated. Totally, totally. Yeah. And I think that the way, I guess, sexual shame is so insidious and so, you know, like quietly impactful um, and sometimes not so quietly. And I think it kind of like shows up and uh, gets stored in the body in a really similar way to trauma, you know, um, I feel like it's sort of putting blocks in place in a really similar way. Would you kind of agree, like from your experience doing body work and internal mm-hmm. vaginal massage, do you kind of find that there's some similarities with someone who's carrying around and has maybe, you know, either a religious background or just got a lot of sexual shame um, and someone who has sexual trauma? So, so I also just want to clarify. Um, so I, I personally don't do internal dearmoring work. I know ah, from doing gotcha. my okay. own, I know from doing my own dearmoring work, um, and understanding the body. But what I see is that I, cause I do, um, dearmoring ex- external. I work with fashion, the rest of the body, but I don't do any kind of genital touch. Um, but yes, in terms of how things live in the body, you know, there's, Um, again, someone could seemingly from, from how they relate to their sexuality, to their body, to, to sex in general, um, people might think, oh, I was sexually abused and I just don't remember. And I I, honestly, it's so frequent that I never question that, but I will not say to somebody, oh yes, that must be it. I, what I will say to somebody is that's possible. And you can also heal without remembering, right? And so we can, there can be a closing. Like I had a client who um, had a bipolar parent and was raised Catholic. And that was, that was why her system was uh, physically guarded and vigilant and sh- had shallow breath. And she was frozen up and she was tight because she was energetically invaded by an unstable, erratic parent. And then she was shamed for being like, once she was starting to feel things and be sexually self-expressed, like what was the information she was getting at school and in class? And what was she taught about women who have sexual desire? And so again, this piece of um, what happens with trauma, I think, you know, all forms, again, the way I'm defining trauma, um, is when your system starts to get overwhelmed, it's feeling more emotion or sensation than it can comfortably tolerate, like to a point of, mm. of, of overwhelm. And it goes into hyperarousal or hypoarousal. And so hyperarousal is anxiety, you know, panic, rage, 
um, hypo is more sleepy, dissociated, and numb. And so Mm -hmm. the wires for excitement and anxiety often get crossed with trauma. And it doesn't have to, it doesn't, again, doesn't have to be that it's sexual assault kinds of trauma. It could be other kinds of trauma and the body's going to have a similar response, right? Um, And so uh, tension, like if you're used to like breathing very shallow, there's going to be restriction in the fascia that doesn't allow you over time to take deeper breaths into your lower belly and activate your parasympathetic nervous system. Like you have to re-stretch the intercostal muscles between your ribs. If you have a habit of holding your breath, which is brilliant because when you hold your breath, you let less oxygen in and you feel yourself less, right? You bring more breath. You're going to feel yourself more. And why would you want to feel yourself if you're afraid or you're, yeah. you're feeling, you know, overwhelmed, Right. Um, so I don't, I see them all as just um, overlapping one another, these different life experiences and um, absolutely live in the body in, in similar ways. I mean, I would, if you gave me specific cases, I could tell you, you know, how I, I would see it living in the body, you know. Hey, babe towns. So sorry to interrupt, but I simply had to pop my head into the lounge here and mention another virtual lounge that you've got to get around. It's the Labia Lounge Facebook group that I've created for listeners of the potty to mingle in. And there you'll find extra bits and bobs like freebies or discounts for offerings from guests who've been interviewed on the podcast, inspiring and thought-provoking conversations, and support from a community of labial legends. So head over to the links in the show notes and I'll hopefully see you in there. And now, back to the episode. Yeah, and I'd love a little bit further on in this in this chat to to go into a bit bit more about. Um, yeah, I guess I, I have people that are quite skeptical about how they're like, but how can uh, an emotional or energetic thing that's kind of intangible show up and manifest in a physical way in the body? Um, yeah. So yeah, I definitely want to want to chat a little bit about that. But in the meantime, I did just find that definition. Of, oh, okay. Of can I? Can shame. I? I'd love to yeah. hear that. And I wanted to just add something, which is generally yeah. speaking, most people live from their collarbones up, right? And so when you're mm, not yeah. occupying yourself, if like most, so many cultures are have shame and they're puritanical, and so we divorce ourselves from our pelvis, right? And in certain cultures, that's not the case, but then they're, they're, they might be more embodied in, in some ways. And then they might have genital mutilation. Like there's, there's layers and it's complex and it's not one size. And, um, but the, the point is that, you know, they've done studies. This was something I read in my twenties and it was a, a, a little paper by Peter Levine and, um, who's a, a, a trauma specialist and, and it was about in utero trauma. And he gave three examples. And um, one was a woman who was so excited about having um, a new child and she was pregnant and painting her the bedroom for the baby. Another person who was giving their child up for adoption, right? And uh, another one is, uh, you know, um, the child 
I think was born prematurely and developed like allergies and different things. All three, in all three cases, whether the baby was twisting away from poison, like the po- poisonous um, um, fumes from from the paint, right? Like there was a twisting in the body. Um, whether it was a child who's been given up for adoption, so the mother was pulling her energy away from her womb because she didn't want to feel the grief of giving this child up, right? Oh. And then, and then, like, what happens to that to that fetus as it's developing? And so there are these different situations. It's like this mother was thrilled to be having a baby, and she's so excited to welcome this baby into the world. She doesn't know she's causing harm by like you know painting with toxic paints. Like there are these things that impact our development that are pre-verbal and can literally yeah. cause a twisting. The reason I was I found this really fascinating is because I have some scoliosis and I my mother did use drugs when she was pregnant with me and I did have all sorts of allergies and I so like all these things really were very quite validating for me when I read this article in my twenties. Wow. Um, I could see it in my body. I could see it in, in how my body had developed. Um. Wow. And, and so, yeah, you know, it's like that, that's the thing is, is that perhaps that child, um, who was twisting away from the toxic fumes who grew up and it shows in the shape of how their body developed is super loved and grows up in a really nurturing environment otherwise. Hmm. So that's, that's one example. It's like, how can something that isn't direct contact shape the body? Hmm. But there's so much, I mean, there's so much more we can get, we can come back to that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, it's a big topic. I realize that that happens a lot on this podcast where I'm mm-hmm. I'm asking some big hard-hitting questions and you know, there's only so much time. But yeah. um Yeah, okay, so I feel like um there was a more expanded version of this and people can go back and listen to the the shameless parenting episode, but basically mm-hmm. the crux of this this sort of quote around sexual shame is that mm-hmm. sexual shame is a visceral feeling, so like really visceral in the body of humiliation and disgust towards one's own body and identity as a sexual being. And it is a belief of being abnormal, inferior, and unworthy. Mm. And this feeling can be internalized. So again, it's always just being turned back on us and and, and internalized in the body mm-hmm. and we're disgusted around our body. And um, and then it goes on to say, there's also fear and uncertainty related to one's power or right to make safety decisions um, in relation to sexual encounters. Mm-hmm. So, you know, mm-hmm. the right to make decisions, including, um, you know, whether or not to have, I mean, all it's just, yeah, yeah all of that um, along with, an internalized judgment towards one's own sexual desire. So that other layer of like, oh, and then there's also judgment around even having sexual desire. So all of that, I was like, oh, my fucking God, that was me. All of that was me. Mm-hmm. Um, no, it's, it's yeah. that's great. And it's, it's, yeah, it's very thorough. It touches so much of it. And you can think of what shame does is shame is closing, right? There's contraction, there's collapse, in the in the muscles, in the fascia, and the t- you know, like there's a um, versus a lengthening and allowing. Like think of a straw, and if you bite down on the straw and you close up, what can move through it? You pinch it, and nothing can flow through it. Versus like a straw that allows things to flow through. 
right? Totally. A shame-free yeah. body is, is an open straw. It's a big, you know, yeah. fire hose <laughs> versus <Yeah. laughs> a pinched, rolled up, yeah. you know, tube yeah. that doesn't allow uh, passion, desire, s- self-love, um, yeah. um, you know, pr- not privilege, but permission for what you want to flow through you. And so if there isn't permission, if you grew up in a family where there's, uh, you know, narcissism or mental illness, where your needs are not allowed, for instance. And so the, how is that not going to translate into when someone asks you when you're a sexual being, what do you want? I've had clients who just name, even thinking, not even verbally saying it out loud to me, let alone their partner, Having needs, articulating needs could cause physical convulsions for them, right? Like that, that there's so little permission. The synapses in the brain are like, this is not allowed. Dangerous things will happen. Mm -hmm. If I have needs, they will not get met. I can't articulate this to myself or to anyone else, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So closed versus open and allowing in very, very basic terms. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. And so many people come to work with me and be like, oh, I can't feel pleasure. I've got numbness. I'm not able to orgasm with a partner. Mm-hmm. Da, da, da. Nothing, you know, nothing has really happened to me. And I, and I had this as well. Like I had boyfriends in, in the early days that were convinced that I must've been sexually mm. abused. Um, mm-hmm. you know, like you were saying before, because that's how my body was reacting to intimacy and, and it just was so closed. Um, And so, of course, like pleasure can't flow, sexual energy can't flow uninhibited and expression, you know, can't, can't move through you. So, um, yeah, there doesn't have to be anything, um, major that's happened to you physically. All it takes is sexual shame to just Mm -hmm. shut it all down and pinch that straw closed, um, yeah, so I'd love to chat more about the mind-body connection in a second, but let's do yeah. the segment Get Pregnant and Die. Don't have sex, because you will get pregnant and die. die. Don't have sex in the missionary position. Don't have, don't have sex standing up. Just don't do it. Promise? Do you have an anecdote about your sex education for us? Ooh, let's see. <laughs> let's see. Yeah, I'm glad you're editing because you're, I, I might have a long pause. Um, <laughs> God, sex education was so uh, lacking. Um, you know, I think I think two things. The, the thing that's most memorable. So first it was like seventh grade, our, my science teacher, right? Of course, and he had to be really, he was really cute and I had a crush on him, but you know, (laughs) all all I remember, but the, the problem was so little was said, right? He just stand up there and he's like, so, you know, boys get erections and it feels really good. Um, and you know, and, and then something about when you're sexually active. And I remember that phrase staying with me he's like because he was like who in this room is sexually active and it's like like what does that even mean you know what does that like because at that age and and even later in in um i remember fast forward i'm 15 and i've come out at camp as bisexuals like social justice summer camp and 
then I went to this other camp. And so it was fresh in my mind, like, you know, I have owned that I'm attracted to, to girls. And ironically, we had a sex ed talk. And there was someone who you would probably say now is either identifies as, as butch or gender non-binary, like, you know, very androgynous or more masculine leaning woman um, who asked a similar kind of question, was talking about sexually active, like who's sexually active in it. I felt uh, vulnerable enough or safe enough with her that I could then, I remember crying in the hallway with her afterwards and talking to her and asking her like, well, what does that mean? And because back in the day it was like, okay, well, if you've kissed someone, are you sexually active? Um, you know, and then I remember being around that same age and having to start being on the pill for polycystic ovaries and endometriosis. And the, the, the woman, the nurse who stuffed this huge, uh, ultrasound inside of me, did an internal ultrasound, like assumed cause I'm getting the pill that I'm quote unquote Aww. sexually active. So there's so many assumptions made with that phrase, which infuriates me because it's so penis centric. It's like, so PIV equals sexually active. Yeah. And it enraged me at the time. And, um, and, and it, and it was so uncomfortable to be at the gynecologist and having them be like, assuming I know how to put the, I put the, the gown on with the front, with it open in the front and the woman had disdain for me. Like she, she was like, what are you doing? Like, yeah, just the, the lack of a sensitivity. It's like, Jesus Christ, I'm a 15 year old kid and you're just, there's, there's no oh sensitivity here. And, um, you know, despite, um, Anyways, so so all of those pieces, it was like, no one is taking the time to actually define what this phrase means mm. and and um, have a more uh, inclusive definition of what sex is, mm. right? Yeah. Well, it's really, really interesting. I, I love that there's, yeah, different things for different people that really stick in their mind and and when I ask that question, like, you know, come, yeah. come out of their memories, like, yeah, wow, sexually active. I don't remember thinking about that phrase, but that's, mm. yeah, of course, like how ambiguous. And it is, it's super heteronormative and yes. also like kind of fucked up that your teachers were asking you to raise your hand if you were sexually active. Like, I don't know about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh. oh, no, of course. I mean, there are so many things. Like it, it's just, but the assumptions and how alienating that is for a kid yeah. who, if they, first of all, they don't know what that means. And then also like, if they're not included in that, mm. like I remember when I was uh, 19 and again, I identified as a lesbian at that time. And, and this girl said to me something about, oh yeah, blah, blah, blah. thinks she's pregnant. You know, we've all been there. And I remember feeling cool. So bad. Cause no, I didn't, Aww. I didn't know I hadn't had yeah. that experience. Right. And so I was yeah. excluded by just a simple assumption. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Oh, thank you for sharing those. Yeah. Those examples of a perfect, perfect get pregnant and die anecdote. Mm. Um, <laughs> get pregnant very- and die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. a fun little segment. Um, I, have, I have a, I have another story to add to that. 
Oh, great. If if, 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 so it's interesting and it's not exactly, it's, it's, uh, it's on a sex education piece, but inside of this feeling of adequacy or inadequacy. And so the only time that I, I, um, because when you have endometriosis, your, your uterine lining is thicker, it'll show up on an ultrasound. I had gone to a gynecologist in my mid twenties and, um, I'd been, gone off the pill for a period and I went back and, and she basically said, um, you know, it looks like you're pregnant. And at that time I had hooked up with a man, but he had not, you know, besides oral sex, nothing else had happened. Right. Like maybe he oh. like came on my stomach or something or my leg. And, yeah. and, uh, I was 21, 22. Oh no, I was 21. And, um, and so I had this moment, she's like, but we're going to do a pregnancy test just, you know, anyways, because it looks like you could be because of your uterine lining. Mm-hmm. So I had this bizarre experience, which I thought was really fascinating, which is I was really excited. Like I felt because of that memory from college when I felt so inadequate because I'd never, I didn't know what it was like to fear being pregnant or to be pregnant. Oh, I suddenly wow. felt weirdly validated as a woman. Oh. At, like, because like I was like, I, well, I was yeah. like, I was like, Ooh, immaculate conception. I'm pregnant. <laughs> and I felt like, do, am I moving differently? Am I, you know, do I look different? Like, you know, with all the stereotypes of like the glowing pregnant woman. And it was this strange because I was so, I was a little feminist, you know, I deconstructed all these notions of things. And yet I was like, wow, I feel validated by this notion that somehow I could be pregnant. So Mm -hmm. bizarre. And I wasn't, of course, but you know. (laughs) Oh my gosh, that is fascinating. Because yeah, under under other circumstances, that would probably like be a horrifying and scary experience. But because you'd had that, that previous, you know, experience of feeling, yeah, alienated and like, I guess, left out of this like common experience of women and your peers, you were like, oh my God, finally, it's a little, totally different, but it's a little bit like when I had my first um, kebab because I'm celiac, <laughs> I've been celiac my whole life, can't I'm fucking sorry. eat bread. Oh, yeah. You just can't, I know, what a ridiculous. I love it. Also, kebab could have been a, a, uh, an innuendo. That's um, what I thought yeah. you were. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just going around talking about eating pussy, being like, yeah, when I had my first kebab. Mm, no, kebab. Um, <laughs> literally like found this place on Brunswick Street that did gluten-free kebabs. And I was just like, what the hell? Because, you know, at that t- that age, I was, you know, in my early 20s, you'd go out, you'd go out dancing. After you'd go out dancing, you'd wind up at 2 or 3 a.m., you'd get a kebab. I could never eat them, you know. I would always be stuck with some hot chips. But then I got to have a kebab and I was like, oh, my God, it tastes like belonging, you know. Yes, exactly. No, I think, you know what, though? It's so funny, but I totally relate because I couldn't eat dairy for 25 years. I didn't do sugar for 15 years. I didn't do coffee for 25, like all these things. And now – I healed myself and I can eat anything I want. And I was hiking Mm. in Montana with a group of these people that were, that were strangers and they wanted to have pizza afterwards. And I, you know, I was camping, first of all, expecting to eat dehydrated foods. And so I was Mm. thrilled to not be eating that. 
But mm-hmm. just this idea, we had ice cream, huckleberry ice cream, and then pizza, Whoa. like things I would never have eaten. And I yeah. felt so yeah. normal and included. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> included. I know. It's just like, you know, these ways that people bond, even yeah. though they might be tiny and it's not like anyone's super, super strongly bonding over a kebab or, you know, sharing this common experience of like, oh God, how scary is it when you think that you're pregnant? Fuck. But like little mm-hmm. things like that really do, especially when we're young and, you know, we, we do seek belonging. We seek this feeling of, of connection and bonding with other people and, and, and shared experiences. So yeah, it makes sense that mm-hmm. it sucks when we don't get to partake in that. Um, yeah. Thank you. Amazing. <laughs> <laughs> love that we I love onto it. <laughs> no, but I love this idea like kebab. It tastes like belonging. <laughs> it's like the no, best. I, know. I think you need a t-shirt that says that. Kebab. <laughs> it tastes like belonging. <laughs> I <know>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could have been the poster girl for that place. Um, oh, so good. <laughs> Excuse the interruption, my loves, but I'm shamelessly seeking reviews and five-star ratings for the potty because, as I'm sure you've noticed by now, it's pretty fab, and the more people who get to hear it, the more people it can help. Reviews and ratings help me curry favor with the algorithmic gods and get suggested to other listeners to check out. Plus, they make me feel really good and appreciated as I continue to pour my heart and soul into creating this baby for you. And I promise I don't maz over them or anything. I mostly just tuck them away for a rainy day when I'm filled with self-doubt and existential dread about being self-employed, which is fairly frequently. (laughs) So you see, leaving a review really does make a difference and it's an easy little act of support that you can take in just a minute or two by either going to Spotify and leaving five stars for the show or writing a written review and leaving five stars over on Apple Podcasts. Choose your poison, or if you're a real overachiever, you could do both. Whoa now. If you are writing a review, though, just be sure to only use G-rated words, because despite the fact that this is a podcast about sexuality, words like sex can be censored and your review won't actually show up. Lame. Anyway, oh, oh, what was that? Oh, you're going to go do it right now while I wait. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a great idea. May as well just quickly click that five-star button before we get on with it and, you know, like forget about it and get on with your day. Um, um, oh, I'm hearing them roll in. I'm hearing those five stars. <laughs> oh my God, I make myself cringe. Anyway, uh, thank you much, Lee. You're a total gem and I'll let you get back to the episode now. All right. So, Let's get back to chatting a little. I want to go a bit deeper into the mind-body connection. It's a part of my work that a lot of people don't understand and are a little mm. bit like cynical or skeptical about. They can't quite wrap their head around it. It's not it sounds really pseudoscience-y. And for me as well, for years I was like, oh, I don't know, like that doesn't I can't like logically my brain can't like make sense of how that's possible. Um and, you know, like now with the work that I do, obviously like I have a, a firsthand experience of, of seeing how, you know, mm. trauma, traumatic energy, emotions, you know, challenging experiences and memories can mm-hmm. get locked away in the bodies and stored in our tissues, in our fascia. Um, and I'd love to, like you sort of touched on it already, but I'd love to go a bit deeper into that. I, I'm often just recommending people go read this book, The Body Keeps the Score. Like that's 
ground zero. Like just start off there. You'll get a bit of an idea. Um, but yeah, let's let's kind of give people yeah. a rundown. Like how is that physically possible? How does that happen? Like what is the mechanism? Why does that why does that happen? Um, where we have like an emotionally difficult experience or something quite traumatic that goes on and we don't have the resources to kind of I guess integrate it or process it at the time mm-hmm. and then it, we kind of tuck it away. <laughs> so it, you know the, the the first thing that actually pops up because I, I that whole thing of like pseudoscience it's so in a way it's this it's elite and it really invalidates mm. ancient forms of wisdom. Yes. Yeah. And totally. It, you know, it's like, okay, so acupuncture has, and Qigong and different kinds of energetic medicine has existed for thousands of years. Yeah. Um, you know, in, indigenous wisdom yeah. has existed for thousands and thousands of years. And, um, and so I find it to be, um, like it's a, a distasteful phrase, you know, when, when people Mm -hmm. use it, like, and I get it. Like I love, um, when I was working with a neuroscience, um, um, uh, neurofeedback practitioner who was a, had been a computer scientist and she would do brain mapping, you know, it was so cool to have an image and to go like, you can see this traumatic brain injury you had, you can see the impacts Mm. of, of trauma, I usually see this red, this, you know, this hyper coherence in the brain of someone who has had to do a lot of anesthetizing, um, in a traumatic and like an, an overly stimulating chaotic environment. Mm-hmm. And, and so it was like, she could l- literally look at a, an image of my brain and go, Oh, you don't have to tell me anything about your childhood. It's all right here. Okay. Yeah, so, wow. so the reality, like that's, it's really cool when you, when, when there's science backing something up, but it's so obnoxious that I, I, it's, I, yes, Body Keeps the Score is a good book, but it's very frustrating that it takes, like, first of all, who does the studies? Where's the money for the studies? Right. Who are the studies usually about? We know that women's health is often neglected. The studies are not happening. Mm. And so it takes, you know, Bessel van der Kolk doing a study about something to suddenly be like, oh, somatic, you know, practices are valid. There's a mind-body connection. Well, yeah. welcome to what we've known yeah. for 20 years. <laughs> you know, yeah. so I just yeah. have to say that. Um, no, and- totally. I, I fully agree. <laughs> like I don't, it's it's so dismissive, isn't it? It's so dismissive when someone's like, no, pseudoscience, oh, that can't be proven. Science doesn't like actually support that. There's no research. There's no studies. I'm like, yeah, cunt, because no one's fucking done them yet. There's no funding. Like no one can, like I get so annoyed about it. <laughs> and I don't think, you know, yeah. necessarily have to like be able to scientifically prove something for it to be real it's just not been proven yet or like it's beyond the bounds of scientific method at the moment but like yeah it's so it is so frustrating but I yes, find myself yes. having these conversations all oh, totally. the time and I like to yeah. have some bit yes. of like I don't know quote unquote proof or like yes yes you know no, I understand. That and, are skeptical. <laughs> and, and so I want to mention a couple books that I think are valuable, but I no, absolutely. And I love, you're so funny. <laughs> Cunt. Um, so, uh, um, uh, ep- epistemicide 
it right it's like the the basically the annihilation of ancient forms of wisdom um is something that gets talked about in a book um who is wellness for by a woman who i actually interviewed for my podcast uh um fariha uh rashin r o i s i n f a r i h a who is wellness for i think is a really beautiful book it's like a mix of memoir but also she's quite brilliant and she's a philosopher like it's very philosophical oh, it's very cool. grounded there's a lot of good information in that book i also interviewed a woman who is she was a nurse who then became a functional medicine doctor and then a functional sexologist and um and she i mean she does so much and she specifically works a lot with autoimmune conditions okay so her name is dr keisha ewer i think it's e w e r um dr keisha if you google that but um and that episode's not coming out until march so don't look for it yet but <laughs> one of the things that i really appreciated is because she has all that science background and she found like uh, you know um that she wasn't healing just with Western medicine, as I also had that experience. You have to go off-roading. You have to look at alternatives. And when you mm-hmm. heal yourself, as I did, through meditation, something's going on. And But we know, I mean, most health issues will go back to inflammation. What is a heart attack? Like, what are, what are, what are these things that occur in the body that we think of as like, okay, that's a serious medical condition. It's like, what does it go back to? Stress. What is stress? If you break it down, our chronic thoughts, our chronic habits, how are we breathing? How are we calming our nervous system? What are the things that contribute to that? Again, back to the ACE study. If you grow up and don't know how to regulate yourself because you're growing up in a a traumatic household, right? Or you're in a society that tells you that you're less valid because you're a woman or you're a gay person or you're a black person, right? Mm-hmm. How is that not going to affect your chronic state of stress, right? If yeah. you don't feel safe in the world, how does that not impact how you hold your body? Your fascia, for people who aren't aware of it, it's like if you had a leg of lamb and that white sheath around the leg of lamb right? Like that's, it may, you may think it's fat, but there's also fascia. We have fascia covering every single cell in our body. There's different kinds of fascia. You wake up in the morning, you're stiff because your fascia has been forming and growing overnight, right? And if I took all the bones out of your body, a perfect shape of you would be standing in front of me because there's fascia coating everything, right? So if I am constantly collapsed and shrinking in on myself and it's not just my muscles that shape and create that protective um, uh, shape to my body. It's the fascia that coats the muscles. And so I have to not only strengthen the muscles, but break up the fascia to shift my physical shape. My physical shape mm. is in support of my belief systems. So when I'm working with someone somatically and I'm doing these uh, martial arts-based practices and body work and standing practices with them, And I'm starting to shift how they hold themselves and invite them to lengthen certain places, breathe into certain places. You can use your breath to break up your fascia. You don't, and then of course, manual work from someone else is very helpful, but your identity is invested in how you've been holding your physical body. And so 
as someone just literally stands there and does a grounding practice and breathes into different dimensions of their body and, and in a new way, it's almost like it starts to break up and it brings the those belief systems to the surface because they're threatened. They're like, oh my God, you have to keep believing this. You have to keep believing that you, you, you aren't allowed to feel this part of your body because if you feel this part of your body, things aren't going to be safe. You're going to be a slut. You know, or whatever. Um, So I use physical practices to bring uh, belief systems to the foreground to then be unraveled. Right. So it's like a back and forth Mm, process. Yeah. Um, In terms of um, you, I, from where I sit, you cannot separate the mind, body, emotions, and spirit. And I'm working on all of those levels with my clients, right? I'm working physically, working emotionally, working spiritually, and working energetically. Yeah. You know, I, so um, it's a funny thing because I totally understand the desire for, for the scientific proof. And then it's kind of like, I love doing these martial arts-based practices with people who are naysayers because the body doesn't lie. And I will get so much instant information in the way that you move towards me and, and do or don't make contact. Mm. You don't need to tell me information about yourself. Mm. Right. Oh, I'd love to have a session with you. Mm. Yeah. Amazing. Come and visit. Yeah. 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 It's, I love, I actually love working with like conservative Christian dads with like queer children, (laughs) you know, I mean, it's, or, or like I work, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? I, I really love bridging the gaps in communication and understanding. And I like not preaching to the converted because you will, I mean, it's amazing. It's so heart opening for me to see someone's mind crack open and and have a new understanding of something Mm -hmm. that they were closed to previously or defensive about previously. Yeah. Yeah. So how can someone tell, like if someone's listening to this, how can they tell if there is stuff from their past, you know, traumatic or Mm -hmm, emotional mm -hmm. being stored in their body? What might that present as or manifest as, you know, how can they kind of get a read on where they're at with that and whether or not they might need to start delving into a bit of, a bit of this release work. So, um, in my twenties, so I started doing this work in my twenties, right? Uh, in my early twenties, I was receiving it in my later twenties, I was practicing it. And with, with people. And I was, I was part of this, uh, um, health collective and there was a referring physician and I did a session with him so he could know what we were doing or what I did. And he said, this is very confusing for me because I feel like I could refer anyone to you. And I was like, yeah, being a human in a body is a traumatic experience. There's going to be stuff that's (laughs) stored there. There's going to be, you know, you want to have more choice. And what happens is, you could be picked last for a sports team. You could have been yeah. bullied because you, you know, had mm-hmm. freckles. I don't know. The, like things, as you said earlier, we don't have to compare things, right? Someone yeah. gets tickled and they suddenly, it's like that is a experience for them that created some kind of closing in their body around a certain mm-hmm. part of their body, you know? And mm-hmm. we come in as uh, with different levels of sensitivity. Yeah. So first yeah. of all, don't, there's no, we don't need to feel ashamed for our shame, right? We don't need to layer 
like being like, oh, I'm too sensitive on top of being Mm. a sensitive, you know, vulnerable being. (laughs) Don't do that. No, no. (laughs) Stop, stop. Go eat a kebab instead. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, come, go get it. Yeah, no, how you feel about how you feel is is the shit, you know. We don't want to be already feeling crappy and ashamed um, and carrying around that shame and then feeling shame about the fact that we have shame, you know, like that's just a double whammy. Like, don't do that. Try not to. (laughs) Right. Right. And we do, we have all these different parts of us, right. You know, if you're into internal family systems, we have parts that are trying to protect us in all the different ways, lots of strategies. Right. Um, But so thinking about somebody, um, you know, anyone can benefit from becoming more present in their bodies. And one way that trauma lives in the body is, so if you're doing, okay, let me see, let me pause for a second. I'm cause I'm there, there's too much to say on this, this yeah. question. And that's why I'm having a yeah. hard time, but hold on for one second. So, <laughs> totally. okay. So if I was doing body work with somebody, you could, someone could be standing there. Someone could be laying down And if they're bringing more oxygen into their body, you can think of oxygen as a way of highlighting the parts of the body where um, something is stored in the tissue. So we are going to have numb places in our body. We're going to have more painful places in the body, right? Or blank Mm -hmm. places in the body. Yeah. And so that's one way, right? If you're dealing with chronic pain, I really believe very strongly in the messages, like our body communicates through pain. Our body asks us to be present. Are, you know, are we dissociating out of habit? Pain is a way to invite you back in and be present. Pain is a way to communicate a message, right? And so numbness, underneath numbness, there's often a tremendous amount of emotion and anxiety, like you'll go through a layer of anxiety as you start to feel, you're like, oh my God, I'm feeling myself. Um, And, and so like I was saying earlier, given most of us are conditioned to live from our collarbones up, it would be very surprising if we're not dealing with pain and numbness. And there's so many life experiences that our families are often not equipped to teach us how to emotionally move through It's like Mm. even a breakup, there can be, um, you know, your heart starts to pull back. You were rejected as a, as a 15 year old. And then Mm. your, your heart, like there's fascia there. That's just like, there's chronic tension in your back and, and armoring in the front because you're afraid of having a broken heart. And if you don't, if you're like, ah, more fish in the sea, get over it or whatever. And you're not actually processing through the emotions it just, it, think of it as plaque. It's like, it's like you, if you didn't brush your teeth, you develop plaque. Well, we get plaque in other parts of our body. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 Big time. Yeah. Big time. And, and yeah. yeah. And I guess, um, like with, with my work, often I'm pretty specifically working with mm. that kind of, yeah, that kind of like pattern happening inside the pelvic bowl, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. where there's numbness, there's you know scar tissue there's like holding patterns there's pain mm-hmm. um and yeah everyone has some level of that and and you know there's usually layers it's really fascinating it's really 
hard stuff as well. Like there's no mm-hmm. kind of like overnight quick fix or like, you know, magic um, solution that I can kind of wave my finger around in there, um, which frustrates people because I think they wish that it was simpler. But mm-hmm. yeah, it really does take a super holistic approach and a lot of safety, a lot of inner resources um, that that they didn't have when, you know, they were younger and these these kind of things got stored in their tissues and, and mm-hmm. saved for later when they did have the capacity to process and integrate them. Right. Um, and so it's not it's not pleasant work to work through this. It's hard. It's you know, it's vulnerable. Um yeah, but I I'd love to I guess I'm just looking at the time and I'm like, all right, I've got a yeah. lot of questions. Which ones are the most important for me to totally, ask before you go? <laughs> I feel the pain of that. I totally know that. I always prepare like twenty questions and then I, I get know. to one and then I go off roading with people. I know. Um, all right, what's gonna be the most beneficial for listeners to kind of tie a bow on this? Um if if someone has specifically sexual trauma, let's kind of mm-hmm. like narrow it, hone in on that. Um, you know, and and they can they can they're suspecting that it's impacting them. Maybe it's really obvious how it's impacting them, or maybe they're just kind of like, you know what, like something's going on here. My sex life could be better. My access to pleasure could be better. I'm unable to surrender, or I never feel fully safe to express myself, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, like, how would you suggest, like, what's the entry point? Where should they go? What should they do just to kind of start moving through it and, and working on this? Like, do you have any advice or pathways? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Hey, me again. If you'd like to support the potty and you've already given it five stars on whatever platform you're listening on, I want to mention that you can buy some really dope merch from the website and get yourself a labia lounge tote, tea, togs. Yep, you heard that right. I even have labia lounge bathers or a cute fanny pack if that'd blow your hair back. So uh, if fashion isn't your passion, though, you can donate to my Buy Me A Coffee donation page, which is actually called Buy Me A Soy Chai Latte because... I'll be the first to admit, I'm a bit of a Melbourne cafe tosser like that. And yes, that is my coffee order. <laughs> you can do a once-off donation or an ongoing membership and sponsor me for as little as three fat ones a month. And I also have a Sunroom profile over on the Sunroom app, as I've mentioned. And I also offer one-on-one coaching and online courses that'll help you level up your sex life and relationship with yourself and others in a really big way. So every bit helps because it ain't cheap to put out a sweet podcast uh, into the world every week out of my own pocket. So I will be undyingly grateful if you support me and my biz financially in any of these ways. And if you like, I'll even give you a mental BJ with my mind from the lounge itself. Saucy. Um, I'll pop the links in the show notes. Thank you. Later. So finding... A practitioner. I mean, I think books can be a, a can feel a little safer sometimes. Sometimes they those can yeah. even be overwhelming. So I would say even if you pick up a book like something like Healing Sex by Stacey Haynes, um, used to be called The Survivor's Guide to Sex, like that can be a really overwhelming book. And so to pace yourself, there's exercises to do in the book. Um, finding a practitioner if you can afford to do that. Um, 
And somebody who works through the body is what I, that's my bias in terms of what I recommend. Learning embodied boundaries is a really, at least for me, was an absolutely key piece. And I, I see that for other people. First, there's a piece of accepting and awareness, like acknowledging that there's, okay, there's a reckoning. There's something that I, that's not working for me. And I would love for it to, I'd like to feel more. I'd like to feel more connected. I'd like to feel more pleasure. I'd like to tolerate pleasure at all right? I'd like to not dissociate during sex or being intimate. I'd like to be able to touch myself and, and not be overwhelmed by shame, you know, whatever is going on for somebody. Um, so micro practices with pleasure, um, embodied boundaries, which I mentioned, it's, you can't have a genuine yes without having an embodied no. So n- starting to work with someone who can help you navigate what does yes feel like in your body, what does maybe, and what does no feel like in your body. So you can actually consent with yourself as well as other people, mm. right? You're making mm. decisions based on what feels good to you and not just engaging in something to please somebody else or to be liked. Um, that's a really big piece because you have to also figure out like how much of what I'm doing sexually, am I just doing out of habit and to, and to, to, so that my relationship doesn't break apart. Like, do I need to take sex off the table, you know, for a period of time with the understanding that that could change. But for, for a while, I really need to know that this is the boundary and it's not going to get crossed. So Mm -hmm. having a partner who's very attuned or not having a partner for a period of time while you're exploring this, um, those are, those are really important pieces and, mm. and examining, like doing a, a real a deep dive with somebody's help around what are, what are your belief systems? What do you believe about sex? What do you believe about sexuality? Right. What are, what emotions yeah. can you be with? What can't you be with? Um, those are some, mm. those are some starting places. Yeah. Beautiful. And in regards to someone who's just carrying around quite a lot of sexual shame and that's mm-hmm. hindering them, mm-hmm. what would you say is like the best way to start uh, just chipping away and, and releasing some of that sexual shame so that it's not ruling us and impacting yeah. all of our experiences? So again, you know, um, I mentioned internal family systems um, and it doesn't have to be that specific formula. There's lots of in when you're working with trauma um, you're working with parts. We have different conflicting parts, right? There could have even been a part of somebody that um, felt pleasure when they were being sexually abused, and then a part that felt incredible fear and a part that felt incredible shame, right? And so then you develop a, a range of strategies that arise in the face of turn on. Okay. Yeah. So when I think of shame, I think, oh, that's, that's one part and not, not disowning and pushing away any part. But I think of the, the piece that needs to be worked on is self-acceptance. It's like, how can I accept all of me and the range of me? And what are all the different? So, so, uh, but one book that you could, two books, actually, one um, is No Bad Parts by Dick Schwartz or Richard Schwartz. And then another book is um, Feeding Your Demons by Sultram Alioni, which is more of a Tibetan Buddhist approach to parts work. Um, and so much suffering comes from a lack of self-acceptance. I mean, and that's what shame is, mm. right? 
So those are some, some places to look. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you. So many good book recommendations. I was just frantically like typing them into my phone. <laughs> I can text them. I can, I can write them down for you. After. Yeah, yeah, actually yeah. that would be great. And I'll put them in the show notes. That might be okay. better because I yeah. definitely, yeah, didn't catch all of them in time. Yeah. Um, yeah, beautiful. Oh, amazing. All right. Well, before we wrap up though, you're not off the hook yet. I'd love a TMI story from you for the segment TMI. We love it. Okay. I've got a TMI story. Awesome. Lay it on All me. right. Okay. So I was, uh, I was dating somebody in my early thirties and I wasn't sure, like I felt an, an, an em- emotional and spiritual connection, but I wasn't sure if we had that sexual connection mm-hmm. and things had gotten deeper and, you know, we were, but I was still throughout this relationship going back and forth with this. And I, and I thought we're going to, uh, you know, we were talking about moving in together. We'd done this course. I went to a non-denominational metaphysical church and he had agreed to go to this thing with me. So he was like, you know, he's making these efforts to open in these mm-hmm. different ways. And so the memory is that it's after this course and I was feeling, my heart was feeling really open to him and I was feeling really in love with him. And he was on the smaller side, you know, his, his penis was on the smaller side and the way that we were positioned, I was laying on my back. I think my legs were over his shoulders and he entered my ass. He didn't mean, he didn't mean to. But the, but it was like, I think because my heart was so, and it wasn't like I had a lot of experience with that, you know, and, but it was, my heart was so open. And I think because he was somewhat smaller, he's my, my butthole was so open and he slid right in and it was actually amazing. And I love, like, I loved it. And it was like an experience that I felt like couldn't get recreated, but it was, it really showed me. It was like this, like the sphincter of my heart, and the sphincter of my butt felt connected. And I just, I was, and, and so, um, so I felt super open hearted and in love with him and it was really pleasurable. So fast forward. So this is a, a, a two, a two for a two part TMI. Nice. We love okay. it. So after uh, somewhat after him, I dated a younger guy who is my neighbor and we, uh, we had a similar birthday dates and we agreed to jump out of a plane together. Like not to get, we, we, we did, we went up separately, but we yeah. parachuted cool. and we both jumped out of planes and my dad, I didn't have a car at the time. My dad drove us. So I jump out of the plane and my experience is I felt like I was being fucked by fucked in the ass by God. Like the memory was that feeling of being so in awe and open hearted and in love. And that was what I, I, I felt the feeling in my body from when I had anal sex with this boyfriend. That's what I felt when I jumped out of the plane. 
Dude, that should be the that should be the tagline for um skydiving. Skydiving feels like you're being fucked in the ass by God, or like feels like anal sex. <laughs> Like I, I afterwards, I was so expansive and open because I'd been so terrified. And then you free fall, you know, and it just felt like mm. everything expanded and opened. And that's basically Ooh. that was my the best experience of anal sex that I've had. So there you go. <laughs> Epic. <laughs> oh, my God. Thank you so much. I loved those. Thanks for going to go skydiving. Ooh, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's been a minute for, for either, for me. <laughs> yeah, totally. Oh, amazing. Oh, my God. Thank you so much. This was such a great chat. And, um, yeah, I'm sure all the listeners got heaps of value out of it. Everyone go check out Charana's work. I'll put links in the show notes and the books and blah, blah, blah. Um, and, yeah. Thank you I don't know. So- that's it. Any parting words? <laughs> well, no, just thank you so much because I really, um, I, I appreciated those, those questions and I, you know, I appreciate your, your humor and your depth and it's just a lovely combination. So thank you. No, stop it. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, babe. <laughs> and that's it, darling hearts. Thank you for stopping by the Labia Lounge. Your bum groove in the couch will be right where you left it, just waiting for you to sink back in for some more double L action next time. And in the meantime, if you'd be a dear and subscribe, share this episode, or leave a review on iTunes, then you can pat yourself on the snatch because that, my dear, is a downright act of sex-positive feminist activism. And you'd be supporting my vision to educate, empower, demystify, and destigmatize with this here podcast. Also, I'm always open to feedback, topic ideas that you'd love to hear covered, or guest suggestions. So feel free to get in touch via my website at freyograph.com or say hey over on Insta. My handle is Freya underscore graph underscore YMT, and I seriously hope you're following me on there because damn, we have fun. We have fun. Anyway, later labial legends. I'll see you next time.